This is the New Yorker Fiction Podcast from The New Yorker magazine. I'm Deborah Treisman, fiction editor at The New Yorker. Each month, we invite a writer to choose a story from the magazine's archives to read and discuss. This month, we're going to hear Sweet Dreams by Peter Stamm. The man seemed quiet, almost indifferent. But in his eyes, Lara saw an attentiveness and a kind of hunger that she found a little disagreeable, but at the same time, provocative. The story was chosen by Tim Parks, whose essays and fiction have been appearing in The New Yorker since 1996. His latest novel, Sex is Forbidden, is out in paperback from Vintage. He joins us from a studio in Milan, where he lives. Hi, Tim. Hi, Deborah. Hi. Peter Stamm is a a Swiss writer who writes in German. You've written about him and you love his work. How did you first come across it? Did you read it in German? Uh, No, I don't actually read German. I came across his work because the New York Review of Books asked me to review it. As always, one looks with a little scepticism, thinking, do I really want to review this? But this was one of those wonderful occasions where you know that you want to read all the guy's work, not just the book you've been sent. And why did they pick you to review it if you didn't know his work? I think it was the first time they reviewed Stam, and I had written a number of articles about the sort of internationalization of literature and about the kind of books that travel easily in translation. What you wrote about, about this sort of new movement of global literature that's not really linked to place, can you tell us a little bit more about that and how Stam fits into that? Well, let me say that I don't think Stam, as it were, deliberately writes towards an international audience. But although translation is always difficult, it's certainly very possible with Stam because... One of the characteristics of his style is he's not showing off in any way with complicated jokes or puns or elaborate vocabulary or syntax. The delivery is very straight, and at the beginning, many readers may feel it's a little flat, but as things go on, there's always a a very threatening feeling that begins to develop. You, You very quickly begin to feel how precarious and dangerous even the most ordinary life is. I think what I like about him very much is is his ability to talk about things that that really look extremely unpromising as stories (laughs) and then to have you begin to feel, well, you know, this is really actually quite disturbing and frightening. I think he's really a master of that. Right, well, that in your uh, New York Review essay... You you said that Stam's project is to entertain us with an ordinary emptiness. What did you mean by that exactly? And do you think that it holds true for this story, Sweet Dreams? I don't think actually it does hold true for this story. <laughs> that sentence was very much directed at a, a short novel called On a Day Like This, which opens with a Swiss teacher living in France who really loves his routine so much. He's so afraid of really doing anything with his life, of, of marrying or really uh, risking or going anywhere. He's sort of in love with the ordinariness of everything. Now, in Sweet Dreams, the setup for the story is fairly ordinary. It's a story about a young couple in the early days of their romance, and not very much happens. But you think it doesn't quite uh, fit the same definition as the novel. Well, it doesn't, it doesn't. Here, these two are falling in love with their routine, the routine of being a young couple doing their shopping and furnishing their apartment and uh, 
dealing with the little problems one has to deal with in cheap rented accommodation above a restaurant and so on. So it does have that feeling that Stam often has of how wonderful routine can be, especially if it's routine, in this case, with a young partner. What almost always happens in his work is that the more attractive life seems, the more dangerous it also seems. And in fact, listeners or readers of this story should keep an eye on how quickly he makes you feel that things could be dangerous. Well, we'll talk more about that after the story. And now here's Tim Parks reading Sweet Dreams by Peter Stamm. The corkscrew was shaped like a girl in a pleated frock, of the sort that Lara knew from childhood photographs of her mother, a short, light green summer dress. Only the red collar didn't really fit. It should have been embroidered tulle and white. Lara could see the pictures, big family get-togethers in a garden in the north of Italy, full of people she didn't know. Even her mother didn't know all their names. That man was a neighbour. What was his name again? And aren't those my mother's cousin Alberto's children? Graziella, Alfino. And what was the little one called? Antonio, Tonino? The colours were faded, which made them somehow more garish. It was as though the photographs had captured the sun, the sun of childhood, pale and ever-present. Thereafter, the family had fallen apart and people had gone their separate ways. When Lara had visited Italy with her parents, there hadn't been any more big reunions, only afternoons spent in darkened homes with old people who smelled funny and served dry cookies and big plastic bottles of lukewarm Fanta. The grip on the corkscrew was the girl's head. She had a page-boy cut and a fixed smile. Lara looked at the price tag. She and Simon already had a corkscrew, and they hardly ever drank wine. She hesitated for a long time, while the shopwoman eyed her doubtfully. Then she pulled herself together and took the corkscrew to the register. Is it a gift? the woman asked, unpicking the price tag and dabbing it on the back of her hand. No, Lara shook her head. No need to wrap it. I'll take it like that. She looked at her watch. The bus wouldn't leave for another half hour. Lara worked at the Raiffeisen Bank, and she got off work before Simon, but she liked to wait for him so that they could travel home together. Usually she'd sit in the bus shelter, smoke a cigarette, and browse through the free paper. Suddenly she'd become aware of Simon standing in front of her, smiling. She'd jump up and kiss him on the lips, and he'd make a remark about her awful habit. Sometimes he meant it. Sometimes he was just being flippant. The last few days it had been so cold that she'd skipped her cherished after-work cigarette and got straight on the bus, which was usually waiting there when she got to the station. Simon worked in a hi-fi store. After it closed, he needed to tidy things away and, when the boss wasn't there, shut down the register. The bus drivers knew him and they waited when they saw him running round the corner. I had to stay and do the till, he said breathlessly, dropping onto the seat beside Lara and kissing her on the lips. Have you been smoking again? They were sitting right at the back. The row with three seats together was their favourite. It wasn't too bright there and the noise of the engine muffled their whispering. 
Lara hadn't taken off her coat, but still she could feel Simon's shoulder against hers. He told her about his day. Picky customers and new equipment. An argument with the owner. Lara loved these rides with him, especially in winter, when it was already dark outside. The half hour up and over the ridge, through little villages, past meadows with old apple orchards and ploughland. The bus radio was playing a country music song. That was Sweet Dreams, the presenter said, by Reba McIntyre, to whom we are devoting the entire show today. Lara kissed Simon and rested her head on his shoulder. They had been living together for just over four months in a little one-bedroom apartment above the train station restaurant not far from the lake. It wasn't ideal, but Simon had wanted to stay in the village where he grew up, and even though there wasn't much going on there, it had proved difficult to find any place at all. The building was old and run down, the staircase was a mess with an old freezer unit partially blocking the way, and stacks of white plastic chairs for the beer garden, empty cardboard boxes and other junk stored on the landing. On the second floor, there were a couple of rooms for guests, which were rarely occupied, and up on the third was their apartment and two studios. One of these was empty. In the other lived Danica, a young Serbian woman who waited tables in the restaurant. When Lara and Simon had first gone to look at the apartment, she hadn't been able to envisage them living there at all. But after they'd been to look at a few other places, all much more expensive, they'd gone back to it. Before they moved in, they repainted the walls. The landlady chipped in with paint and brushes and gave them a free hand with the decoration. They spent whole evenings talking about colour schemes, but in the end they just painted everything white. The rooms looked cosier right away, and Lara was happy. It was a good time to leave home, even though she got on well with her parents. She was ready to take control of her life, to buy things, to move out. Lara was 21, Simon three years older. He'd had one girlfriend before Lara, but they hadn't lived together. It wasn't anything serious, he'd say if Lara asked. He had also lived with his parents before moving in with Lara and still needed to get used to the fact that clothes didn't wash themselves and the fridge didn't automatically refill itself. But he too seemed to get a kick out of going shopping together on the weekends and deciding what they would cook today and tomorrow and the next day. Do we need milk? You know, the coffee's almost gone. We're out of garbage bags. Sentences like that had an unexpected charm, and a full shopping cart was like an emblem of the fulfilled life that lay before them. When Simon wheeled it into the underground parking garage with Lara at his side, she felt a deep pride and a curious satisfaction at being grown up and independent. They had been to Ikea a couple of times and bought a mattress and a box spring and various bits and pieces for the bathroom and the kitchen, lamps and tablecloths and silverware. Simon's parents had given them an old table and four chairs. For a wardrobe, they had a set of cheap shelves for which Lara had sewed a red curtain. She loved these little tasks, making cushion covers, installing a new toilet seat and a shower head, putting up posters. Simon would watch her, 
and enjoy it with her. The electrical things were his department. Every week there was something new, a barely used coffee machine that Lara had found on eBay, a wooden crate for their shoes, a whole stack of yellow bath towels that were on sale. Simon rarely got involved. At most he would say, Do we really need this? Or, How much did you pay for that? It's a mistake to economise on quality. These towels will last us forever, Lara told him. Forever's a long time, Simon answered. He hadn't brought much into their household. The rented van they'd driven first to his parents' house, then to hers, was barely a quarter full of his boxes of clothes, CDs and old school books. Most of the space was taken up by his stereo equipment, his gigantic loudspeakers and his computer. They bought a TV on an instalment plan, a showroom model that Simon's boss gave them a good price on. How do you like this? Lara asked, producing the corkscrew from her bag on the empty seat next to her. Simon took it and played with it, saying nothing. He furrowed his brow and pulled on the screw, and the girl raised her arms. A ballet dancer, he said. No, Lara said, just a girl. Do we even have any wine? That bottle from your parents, Simon said. He was still playing with the thing, pulling the handles up and down, causing the girl to wave her hands, as if cheering or calling for help. Was it expensive? We drank that when Hanny and Martin came over, Lara said. Don't you remember? The restaurant below their apartment was a bit seedy. Lara and Simon never went there, even though their landlady was the manager. If they ate out anywhere... It was at a place a hundred yards up the road which did stuffed chicken breasts. They rarely went to the lakeside disco where they'd met. During the week, they went to bed early, and if they felt like going out dancing on the weekend, they went into the city, where there were better clubs and not everyone knew them. The bus stopped outside the station, and the driver wished everyone a nice evening over the PA. The passengers got off, said a word or two in parting, and went their separate ways. Lara knew most of them, if only by sight. But there was one man she hadn't seen before. He had turned around once or twice during the trip and looked at her. When the driver announced the last stop, he had got up right away and gone to the door, even though the bus was stopping anyway. While the bus took its last few turns, the man stood in front of Lara, he looked about 40, and with his long black coat, he didn't really fit in. As she was studying him, their eyes met. The man seemed quiet, almost indifferent. But in his eyes, Lara saw an attentiveness and a kind of hunger that she found a little disagreeable, but at the same time provocative. She turned to Simon, kissed him and asked, "'Will you come to the market with me tomorrow, during your lunch break?' She could tell that her voice sounded artificial and even a bit loud, but she felt she had to say something. The man in the black coat was the first to get off the bus. Lara saw him walk back in the direction of the main street. After a few steps, he turned around quickly, as though to see whether she was following him, and their eyes met once again. Do you know him? Simon asked. Lara shook her head. His face looks familiar to me, for some reason. 
Lara locked the door behind her and read, as she did every evening, the handwritten sign that hung in the foyer. Please don't throw bread away. Beside the door was an old cardboard box filled to the top with stale bread. Lara wondered what her landlady planned to do with it. From the restaurant came the sounds of music and loud laughter. When folk bands played there on Fridays, Lara and Simon could hear the racket up in their apartment. Even worse were the toilet smells in the hallway and the smoke that wended its way up the stairs. Simon had been down to complain a couple of times, but the landlady just said that if they were so bothered by the smell, they should open a few windows. Are you hungry? Lara asked. I wouldn't mind a hot bath before dinner. I'm chilled to the bone. The half hour in the bus hadn't been enough to warm her up. I bought some fresh ravioli. They take only three minutes, she added. I had a late lunch, Simon said. I'm not hungry yet. They were standing together in the kitchen, and Lara was putting the groceries away. She held up the corkscrew. Do you like the colour? Green, Simon said. And Lara thought about the faded colours of the Italian photos again. It was 45 francs, she said. Do you think that's too much? Simon shrugged. You could always get a bottle of wine from the restaurant while I'm in the bath, Lara said. And then we can initiate the corkscrew. She went to the bathroom, ran the tub and got undressed. The mirror misted over with condensation and the smell of pine needles filled the air. She turned off the water and the apartment seemed suddenly very quiet. Then she heard footsteps and Simon's voice through the half-open door. He said, I'm just going downstairs for the bottle of wine. I thought you'd gone already, Lara said, and she poked her head around the door, and he kissed her and tried to push the door open, but she held it steady. They kissed again. See you in a minute, Lara said. It was odd. She still felt a little embarrassed in front of him. When they went to bed... She would change in the bathroom and slip under the sheet next to him in her nightie. She'd wait impatiently for him to slide across to her, but she never dreamed of taking the initiative. Before they'd moved in together, it had all been pretty complicated. She'd introduced Simon to her parents fairly early on and they'd liked him, but he had never spent the night under their roof. Lara would have felt ashamed of sleeping with him in her childhood bedroom and she would have been scared of her parents walking in on them or hearing them, even though they weren't noisy in bed. When they had slept together, it was at Simon's parents' house. Lara had always felt tense and had started at the smallest sound. In the summer, they'd done it in the forest a couple of times, but that was uncomfortable and Lara had been just as nervous. She'd yet to get used to their new freedom. Even now, she was scared that someone would see them or hear them. Sometimes, when Simon was on top of her, she pulled the covers up over his head. When he tried to push them down, she held on to them and said, I'll get cold. She basked in the warm water and thought about what still had to be done in the apartment, what they were still missing. She would have liked a bedside table, but it wouldn't make much sense to buy one, since they didn't even have a bed frame. They had seen a colonial-style bed in a furniture store, 
a sort of four-poster in poplar, with white tulle curtains. A dream, a salesman who had approached them and was looking at them expectantly, said. That bed came with fitted tables, and a wardrobe as well. But for the moment, it was more than they could afford, and Laura wasn't sure if Simon liked it, or if it wasn't a bit girly for him. When they'd gone to see the beds at Ikea, Simon's only question each time had been, Is it strong? Will it hold up? He probably hadn't meant it like that, but Lara had still felt embarrassed in front of the salesman. We don't need to buy everything at once, she'd said. So now they had a mattress and a box spring on the floor. After twenty minutes, she got out of the bath and pulled the plug. She dried herself on one of the big yellow bath towels. It wasn't actually a colour she liked, that slightly off, mustardy yellow. But you couldn't argue about the quality. The quality was excellent. She had put the towels through the wash a couple of times, and they still felt brand new. Lara remembered what Simon had said. Forever is a long time. Presumably, the towels would outlast their relationship, she thought, and that gave her a shock. She loved Simon and he loved her. But was there any guarantee that he would still love her in five or ten years' time? Her notions of the future were both very precise and very vague. She wanted children and a home, and she wanted to go on working part-time once the children were there. In a few years she would get her promotion and maybe one day she would become branch manager. But all that seemed very far off, a different life. Sometimes she asked herself if Simon had the same sort of dreams that she had. It made her suspicious when he said, Let's just wait and see. Que sera, sera. We're still young. In fact, he still felt as strange to her as this apartment, which was only slowly turning into home. She never knew exactly what he wanted. He didn't talk about himself much. It was only when he was with his friends that he seemed perfectly natural and relaxed. She wrapped the towel around her, rinsed her hair in the sink and put it up. Suddenly she felt a longing for Simon. She wanted to throw her arms around him, lie in bed with him and press herself against him. She went to the kitchen but he wasn't there. Simon, she called and went into the living room and then the bedroom. Simon? He was still down in the restaurant, she told herself. He was sure to be back any moment. She sat at the table and leafed through the free paper she had picked up at the bus station. An ex-Miss Switzerland wanted to climb Kilimanjaro to raise money for a children's cancer hospital. Prince William had worn a toupee for a portrait photographer, or so at least the newspaper claimed. An American had been put to death for a murder he had committed 25 years ago. Under the headline... Gruesome find on lake. There was a story about a trout fisherman who had stumbled upon a dead body in the water just offshore. The policemen who had pulled the body in were quoted as saying that the dead man had been missing for a couple of months. Presumably it was suicide, though accidental death was also a possibility. The water temperature was less than 40 degrees. If you fell in, you wouldn't last more than a few minutes. Water dripped from Lara's hair onto the picture of the marina 
where the body had been found. With a shudder, she pushed the newspaper away. She thought about that man being in the lake only a few hundred yards away, while she and Simon were moving in, or eating their supper, or making love. She felt cold in her towel. There was only a gas heater in the apartment, and the windows were not exactly insulated. Lara went into the kitchen and put on the water for the ravioli. She took two plates from the cupboard and a couple of forks off the draining board and scrubbed at a stain on one of the counters, but it wouldn't budge. The kitchen was from the 70s, and you could scrub away at it as much as you liked, but it never got completely clean. Lara went to the bathroom, blow-dried her hair, and put on some clothes. She crept down the creaking staircase. She didn't turn on the landing light. She didn't want to be seen. The music had stopped, and the voices had quieted down, too. She had almost reached the bottom when the door to the bar opened, and she saw the backlit silhouette of an enormous man. At the same moment, the light turned on in the hallway. The man had a flushed complexion. He pulled the door shut behind him and passed her without a word on his way to the men's room, as if he hadn't seen her. The landlady's voice was loud and distinct. He didn't recognise him right away, she was saying, because the man was face down. In summer he probably would have bobbed up sooner. Lara pushed open the door to the bar and stepped inside. There were half a dozen men at the bar and the tables, and Lara was alarmed because they all seemed to be looking at her. But then she realised that their attention was on the landlady behind the bar. She was talking about something else now. They ought to poison that son of a bitch, she said, to teach him what it feels like, those poor dogs. Lara had seen the tabloid headline, Animal Hater Strikes Again. Simon was standing on one of the benches along the wall, his head obscured by an enormous TV mounted on the ceiling. Right behind him, and looking up at him, stood Danica, the waitress. Even though they were neighbours, Lara had run into her only once or twice on the stairs. Sometimes she heard her footsteps on the landing late at night, but there was never any sound from her studio. Danica had come to Switzerland from Serbia with her parents when she was little, she'd told Lara and Simon the first time they met. She hadn't managed to find an apprenticeship, even though she had good grades. Do you think she's attractive? Lara had asked Simon later. Other women don't interest me, he'd replied. But surely you've got an opinion? I don't know, he said. I think she's got bedroom eyes, Lara said. And Simon laughed and kissed her. Simon seemed to be trying to fix the TV. After a while, he jumped off the bench and said something to Danica. She smiled and switched the TV on, and together they looked at the screen, which was showing a grainy picture of a downhill skier. Simon spotted Lara and went over to her. A faulty connection, he said. And when she looked at him in confusion, the TV's on the blink. He turned to the landlady and said that the antenna wire was bent, but he could bring her a new one tomorrow. Isn't it practical having a workman in the house, the landlady said. What will you have to drink? A glass of red? I was going to buy a bottle of wine, Simon said. It's on the house, the landlady said. And the young lady? Simon looked at Lara, and then he said, 
I'd rather have a beer. And Talara, are you hungry? Sit down, the pair of you, the landlady said, dunking a glass in murky dishwater and pouring a large beer. There wasn't a free table, so Simon sat down opposite an old man who seemed to have had a few already. Lara slid onto the bench next to Simon. She asked me if I'd take a look at the TV, he said half apologetically. A faulty connection. I thought you weren't coming back, Lara said. She sounded reproachful, which she didn't mean to be. She'd promised herself that she wouldn't be clingy with Simon. He had just wanted to help out. She was sorry she'd come down. If she'd stayed upstairs, he surely wouldn't have accepted the landlady's offer and would have come back up. Danica stepped over to the table, bringing Simon's beer and a glass of wine for Lara. The landlady and the men were still talking about the poisoned dogs and what the authorities should do to the guilty party if they caught him. The drunk at their table said under his breath that he could think of a couple of dogs he wouldn't mind poisoning. Lara wasn't sure if the remark was intended for them, and she didn't reply. She felt her hair, which was still a little damp. For no obvious reason, the drunk started talking about a cruise he'd gone on almost twenty years ago on the Black Sea. It had been dull. Those cruises were pretty uneventful. I've been to the Crimea, to Sevastopol, where the Russians have a navy base and submarines. That was an experience. That was worth it, he said. Simon didn't seem to be listening. He drank his beer and looked up at the TV, where a different skier was now on the slope. From the speaker came the sound of cowbells and the rhythmic shouts of supporters. Lara wasn't sure where the Black Sea was. Danica appeared at their table and filled up Lara's glass before she was able to say, No, thank you. Now she was sitting there foolishly with her hand over the full glass. She hadn't had anything to eat since lunchtime, and she could feel the alcohol going to her head. Will you have another beer? Danica asked. Simon glanced quickly over at Lara, as though he needed her permission. Then he said, Yes, sure, and half got up. Will you excuse me? I'll be back in a minute. Lara let him out. No sooner had she sat down again than the drunk asked if she was from the area. He hadn't seen her before. She felt ill at ease in the bar, threatened by the loud landlady and the drunken men who were ogling her. I grew up in Kreuzlingen, she said. The man held out his hand and said that his name was Manfred. She shook his hand and said, Lara. Dr. Shivago, he said. That was a nice film. With Omar Sharif and... Who was she again? Julie Christie, Lara said. In the streetcar, the drunk smiled. I have a sister in Kreuzlingen. Have you ever been to Russia? No, Lara said. She wanted to say something else. She would feel safer if she were talking, but she couldn't think of anything. Where is the Black Sea again? she asked finally. If you're coming from the Mediterranean, you pass Istanbul and go through the Bosphorus, then you're in the Black Sea. The south shore is Turkey, and in the north are Bulgaria, Romania, Ukraine and Russia. Have you been to all those places? Lara asked. I went on that cruise, Manfred said. That's where I met my wife. She's Ukrainian. She was working on the ship, but that didn't work out. 
Danica came back and asked if they wanted anything. Both shook their heads. When she was gone, Manfred said in a whisper, I tell you, those women from the East. And then he laid his finger across his lips. Lara was relieved when Simon finally returned. He was holding a dirty white cable in one hand. He had a quick word with the landlady, and then he climbed up on the bench again and switched the cables. For a moment there was just a streaky grey on the screen. Then the picture suddenly came clear, and the sound seemed even louder than before to Lara. Simon punched through a few channels on the remote, probably to check that the reception was uniformly good. There was a brief glimpse of two men sitting facing each other. Lara was almost sure that one of them was the man in the black coat from the bus. But the scene disappeared immediately, to be replaced by a woman arguing with a little girl, and then a group of soldiers sneaking through a forest, and then back to the skiing. Simon returned to the table. I just remembered I had an old cable lying around, he said, and smiled in satisfaction. Shall we go, Lara said, getting to her feet. The landlady didn't want any money for the bottle of wine. It's in return for the cable, she said, giving Lara and Simon a hand, which felt soft and a bit soapy from the washing up. Don't do anything I wouldn't do, one of the men called after them as they left the bar, and everyone laughed. The water was boiling violently. Half of it had evaporated already, leaving a white chalky line at the top of the saucepan. Lara quickly turned off the gas. Never ever leave the stove on when you go out, not even for a second, Simon said, as if Lara didn't know that. It's not my fault, she said. I thought you'd be back right away. She felt like crying. I didn't mean it like that, Simon said, and kissed her. Nothing happened. Lara turned away and picked up the corkscrew. Simon watched alertly as she took the plastic seal off the bottle. She had to overcome her own resistance to place her thumb over the girl's face and apply enough strength to insert the screw into the cork. She looked Simon in the eye, let him see how furious she was. I'm sorry, he said. I know, it's my fault. She set down the bottle and said, as if in conciliation, you do it. Simon put on a rather ceremonious expression, as though God knows what surprise was in store, and slowly pushed down on the girl's arms. With a bright popping sound, the cork came out of the bottle. Simon looked at Lara with a grin. She threw her arms around him and started to kiss him, went on repeatedly kissing him, and tried to undo the buttons on his shirt. Simon, not looking where he was putting it, set the corkscrew down, and with their mouths glued together, they undressed each other and let their clothes drop to the floor. Simon almost fell over as he wriggled out of his tight jeans. He was only just able to catch himself on Lara, who was impatiently tugging at the hooks on her bra. When they were both naked, Lara lay down on the coconut matting they had bought at Ikea, and Simon knelt between her legs. He tried to enter her, but couldn't. Wouldn't you rather go to the bed, he asked. Wait, Lara said, and she disappeared into the living room and came back with one of the sofa cushions. She lay down again and pushed the cushion under her. The matting was rough and she could feel it scratching her back, but she didn't care. Soon, Simon rolled off her and lay next to her and she understood that he had come. 
She was still aroused and stroked him until he was hard again. This time she sat on top of him. Simon didn't seem very focused, but she didn't care. She rode him till she could no longer feel the burning in her knees and sensed the blood rushing to her face. She shut her eyes and moved more and more vigorously. It was as though it were all happening inside her head, as though all her sensations were combining to form one overwhelming feeling. Then she heard herself shout, and she dropped, panting onto Simon, her head beside his, not daring to look him in the eye. She lay like that, until her breathing came more evenly, and she could feel her body again, the pain in her knees and the chill on her back. She sat up. Simon looked at her in astonishment and asked with a smile, Did the earth move for you then? She laid a finger across his mouth. Her face grew very earnest, and she said, If you ever stop loving me, I want you to promise to tell me. But I do love you, Simon protested. I mean, because you never know what will happen, Lara said. And now I have to put something on, or I'll catch cold. In the bathroom, she saw that the pattern of the coconut matting was imprinted across her back and that her knees were scraped open. She thought of taking a shower, but for now she just put on a fresh pair of panties and pulled on her dressing gown. When she went back to the kitchen, Simon had got dressed, put fresh water on to boil, and laid the table. He poured two glasses of wine and passed her one, and they toasted each other. Here's to us. The wine was awful. Lara didn't sit facing Simon as she usually did, but beside him, and she kept touching him during the meal, grazing his arm or stroking his neck and back. After they'd finished eating, they sat for a long time talking. Lara was bubbly. She spoke faster and more volubly than usual. I think I must be a bit drunk, she said. I'd better look out then, hadn't I? Simon said with a smile. Shall we go to bed? He went to the bathroom and came back in pyjamas. Lara didn't feel like brushing her teeth. She just took off her dressing gown and slid into bed with Simon. He lay on his back and she pressed herself against him, slipping her hand under his pyjama top and stroking his chest. Are you tired? she asked. Yes, Simon said. And with that he turned on to his side and soon his breathing was calm and even. Lara didn't feel at all tired. After lying there awake for a while, she got up and made herself a cup of tea in the kitchen. Then she went to the living room and turned on the TV. She flipped her way through the programmes. It was mostly films and talk shows. Lara stopped for a moment at one station with phone sex ads and watched the women rubbing their breasts and moaning, Call me! Call me! For once, she didn't feel disgusted. On the contrary... She felt a kind of sympathy or solidarity for the women, which surprised her. She clicked onward, and suddenly there was the man from the bus again. It was the local channel, which recycled its programmes every hour. The studio was in the old town, not far away. Lara knew the host by sight. He had been a teacher at Simon's school. She listened for a while before it dawned on her that the guest on the show was a writer, She'd never heard his name before. 
the host's questions were often longer than the man's short, factual replies. Again, Lara was aware of his alert look, which had caught her attention on the bus. Asked where he got the ideas for his stories, he said that he found them on the street. Only today, on the bus to the studio, he added, he'd seen this young couple, two perfectly ordinary young people, sitting together and talking terribly earnestly. They reminded me of my youth, of a woman I wanted to marry and have kids with, he said. Then something got in the way. But I've never felt so sure of anything as I did then, before I really knew the first thing about living. He imagined that the couple had only just moved in together. They were still furnishing their apartment and buying things for it, and maybe, with slight astonishment, contemplating the years that lay ahead of them, asking themselves whether their relationship would last. It was that blissful but slightly anxious moment of starting out that interested me, the writer said. Maybe I'll write a story about it. And how will the story end? the host asked. The writer shrugged. I won't know that until I've finished it, he said. He talked about how young couples sometimes resembled very old couples perhaps because both had to deal with uncertainty. The host asked if it wasn't tricky to write from life. The writer shook his head. He wouldn't be painting a portrait of these two individuals. They'd given him an idea for something, but they had nothing to do with the people he'd write about in his story. In actual fact, they weren't a couple at all, he said. They'd got off at two different stops and kissed goodbye on the cheek. Lara heard the last train pull in. Quarter to one. She went up to the window and saw the train standing there, with no one getting on or off. After a while, it silently pulled away. The writer would have gone home long ago, even as he continued to speak on the TV. For a month, the channel would keep replaying this conversation with him in an endless loop, until he himself had become just as imaginary a figure as Lara or Simon. That was Tim Parks reading Sweet Dreams by Peter Stamm, translated from the German by Michael Hoffman. The story appeared in The New Yorker in 2012 and is collected in We're Flying, published by The Other Press. Hi, I'm Deborah Treisman, fiction editor of The New Yorker. Each week on the Writer's Voice podcast, New Yorker fiction writers read their newly published stories from the magazine. You can hear from authors like Colson Whitehead... Turner nudged Elwood, who had a look of horror on his face. They saw it. Griff wasn't going down. He was going to go for it, no matter what happened after. Or Joy Williams. Her father was silent. Slowly, he passed his hand over his hair. This usually meant that he was traveling to a place immune to her presence, a place that indeed contradicted her presence. She might as well go to lunch. Listen to new stories or dive into our archive of great fiction. You can find the work of your favorite fiction writers and discover new ones. Listen and follow The Writer's Voice wherever you get your podcasts. Tim, why do you think that Stam opens this story with the corkscrew? This, this corkscrew with its female head and body, does it have some symbolic meaning here? Well, yeah, let's let's stay away from words like symbolic. <laughs> um, you know, I think you listen to a story like this and you can see that the core of the story is 
Lara and her desires and anxieties, which uh, are very much measured off against each other. And, and precisely then that because all this has happened, because all this tension, which you feel that she's she's ready to feel tense about anything, when they get back to the apartment, that simply lets go. Her desire to make love to her boyfriend and to really to really live rather than, than be afraid. And you get the feeling that for the first time they've really made love for her in a, in a in an almost violent way. And the corkscrew just fits so neatly into that. The idea of of the girl whose arms get, get pressed down and the wine cork pops out with with a little explosion, which seems to offer a, a sort of artificial an artificial grin on the part of Stam <laughs> at what's happened. And I often feel with his writing, because his writing's very interested in, in this regard, that on the one hand, it's all incredibly ordinary. I mean, you know, he he goes out of his way to make these people's lives uninteresting, as it were. But on the other hand, he always frames his work very beautifully. Uh, there's always a, a lot of form in it. So in this case, we have the writer at the beginning and the writer at the end. And so he creates a certain artificialness about it, which, which I feel is almost a protection for him from the precariousness and, and the messiness of life. So that, you know, he's, he's stepped back from his story a bit. I mean, mm-hmm. you don't write endless stories about people who always have these kind of anxieties without presumably having a little of that yourself. And... Um, I feel that the, the way he frames things with the corkscrew, it's beautifully done. No, it's very elegant because in the beginning you think it's just a minor detail on a way of getting you in. Mm, not me. <laughs> <laughs> well, you're a writer, so you know why people do these things. I mean, the little bit, the little bit where she has to put her thumb over the face. Mm-hmm, and she doesn't uh, want to. As it were, to remove the individuality and, and to just become a girl who, who lifts her arms up and down. And when she makes love, then she she does throw away her her sort of little personal worries and and becomes a woman. It's beautifully done, and he's very very clever at that. But it's a cleverness that's always understated. It's never in your face in any way. I want, I want to go back to that what you mentioned this kind of malevolence in the landscape around her. You know, this dead body in the lake and the the dog poisoner on the loose and these <laughs> large men looming in the hallway or staring at her in the bar. Why does the environment feel so hostile? Well, the environment feel it clearly doesn't feel hostile to Simon. Right. Simon obviously hasn't noticed anything at all. <laughs> um, you know, if you're anxious, everything will make you anxious. And it's all beautifully done here, even when, when she turns to look at the writer and he's looking back at her and you, and you get the feeling, oh, I shouldn't have looked... Almost everything that happens causes her anxiety, the question of the, the boiled water. I think the the sort of expressionist movie situation where the figure looms in the hallway and she's trying to creep down without being noticed for, for no reason. She just has this phobic aspect to her. Well, she has, a, she has a terror of being seen. You know, she doesn't want to be seen by the man on the bus. She doesn't want to be seen by the man in the hallway and she doesn't want to be seen when she's having sex with her boyfriend. She hides under the covers or wears her nightie. She's frightened of exposure because she's yeah. frightened that then other people could intervene if, if she's exposed. Well, one, there's one cultural detail here. I, I said he manages to keep culture-specific details out of things, but there's a moment where in the bar, in the bar where there's no one to sit 
And so they sit opposite this man who then turns out to be drunk. This business of sitting at somebody else's table is a very German and Swiss-German thing mm -hmm. that maybe in England they, they wouldn't have done that. They'd have stood at the bar kind of thing. And, and then it's lovely that Simon, just not even aware that his girlfriend is anxious, hurries off to pick up the cable, leaving her to, to deal with this man who's, who's telling her that, that women from the East are dangerous. You know? <laughs> well, so then, then they go back upstairs and they have this moment in which Lara just completely lets go of all of the anxiety. She's liberated from something. Why does that happen? What causes that shift? I don't think she's liberated in a simple way of, of being free of something. I think the anxiety has actually caused this moment. She's been made very alive by all these fears. They've woken her up. Um, mm -hmm. She's been made aware of her sexuality. The guys down in the bar are saying, you know, don't do anything we wouldn't do as, as Simon walks off with his gorgeous young lady. And, you know, why did she why did she buy that corkscrew in the first place? What was she thinking of buying a corkscrew where it's a pretty girl who pulls the cork out of the bottle? You know, yeah. she she's been wanting to get to this point. You you told me it wasn't symbolic. It's not. <laughs> it is what it, it is. It, it's a, it's a, she she gives it meaning. You yeah. know, it's it's not a symbol for the reader. It's I mean, it, you know, it, it's a corkscrew with a, with a girl on it. You can think, well, that's sexy, you know. I shy away from the idea that, that literature has to be put together with symbols, you know. Yeah, yeah. But obviously these objects have meaning and they have meaning in, in the lives of the characters. If you want to give them meaning. Yeah. yeah. clearly given it meaning. He looks at it in the first place and can't figure it at all, you know. He says, <laughs> a ballet dancer, you know. And yeah. Lala says, oh, it's just a girl. It's just a girl, you know. We got yeah. a bottle of wine. As yeah. if she's saying to him, I want to I get drunk and, and make love. Then there's the other household object that has meaning, which is these, these towels, you know, these high-quality towels, which, which come up as a sign of, of how long their relationship is going to last. Will it last longer than the towels? Yeah, what a sad thought. <laughs> I mean, you have to feel that, that she's very ill because when the boyfriend says forever is a long time, he's surely not saying, you know... The towels are going to outlast our relationship. I suppose it speaks highly for the quality of, of Swiss towels or German <laughs> towels. I don't know. Um, but towels can indeed outlast relationships. There you go. Yeah. Stan never never misses a chance to uh, to give you a little deflating detail like that. Yeah. The funny thing about Stan, I've talked a lot to people in Germany about Stan, and, and he has a... He has a kind of mixed reputation of, of people who, who, like me, just greatly admire him and, and other people who are a little sceptical and they say, well, you know, it can be a little dull. I actually think his work's hugely funny. I think there's a huge sense of humour coming through this in lots of places when, you know, she didn't know where the Black Sea was, you know. Yeah, yeah. And this bore is going on to her about the Black Sea. Well, there are so many, you know, slight winks to the to the reader and then of course the biggest one is the ending and the man in the black coat you know what what do you think we're supposed to make of that is is the man in the black coat peter stamm is it... well i've seen stamm in a black coat and then i've seen a lot of people <laughs> in black coats you know um again i think you know i take this back to to what i said about the the framing of of the piece and the way he gets you distant from it and he gives you the sense that 
that it has a beginning and an end with the, with this person, which isn't perhaps the real content of the story, which which I think is very much Lara's character and how she oscillates between those fears and then that aggressive enjoyment of life. I actually think it's an incredibly tender picture of um of a, a young couple and particularly of the young girl. But looking at the end, it's a very nice touch when he says, in actual fact, they weren't a couple at all. They got off at dis- different stops and kissed goodbye, which makes you think, well, is he actually talking about about these two? And if he is... Why is he lying about it, you know? Or did he just write it differently? Are we reading the story he wrote? Yeah, or did he just write it differently? It's a, it's a kind of statement, yeah, of, of caprice, if you like. But it throws the reader quite nicely there at the end. Yeah, well, I mean, you know, one of the one of the pleasures of fiction is is suspending your disbelief and, and feeling that everything is real. So at the very end of the story, to kind of pull the rug out from under that, it's a bit of a trick, Again, we know that the reality of the story is is the psychological observation of, of yeah. how this young woman works. We, we don't need to believe that there is a Lara in this particular apartment. We just know that there are thousands and thousands of people who have this particular mindset. That doesn't worry me at all. But again, I actually feel that, that Stam protects himself, that the whole question of protection is terribly important in his work. And just as these people are building a little flat to be protected from the world in. He's building his story and snipping it and getting it just right um, so that everything can be delivered without, at the end, somehow being exposed the way one would be if if one really did, as as he says, right from life. Well, you know, it's funny because when I, when I was editing this story, I talked to Stam about the ending and... He just blamed it all on the man in the black coat. I'm going to tell you what he said. He said, the man in the black coat appeared quite early while I was writing, and I did not yet know what role he would play. (laughs) When, in the end, he tells us that the characters we've just met are invented, I wasn't very happy. I usually (laughs) don't like to end a story with a punchline. It weakens the plot and turns the story upside down. So I added a second punchline to set the story back on its feet by giving Lara the last word. So finally, fiction wins over a reality that is fictitious as well. Well, yeah. Them. It becomes very complicated. <laughs> you know, the end can be there or not be there. As far as I'm concerned, it, it's not important for me. For mm-hmm. me, the story really works and ends with that lovemaking and then the boy going to sleep and her wandering around the apartment from the excitement that's keeping her awake. For me, that that that's fine. That's the story. Yeah. He's finished it off with this a little clever flourish with the writer, but I, I couldn't really care less about that. The, the, <laughs> the truth of the story for me is in this brilliant portrayal of, of a, an ordinary evening with these two folks. Can you imagine what the story would be if it were told from Simon's point of view? Would I don't there think be, be a story, story at all if it was told <laughs> Simon's just having a cheerful, ordinary day. I mean, Simon, probably if we hear the story from Simon about 10 years on when he's saying, why on earth is this woman I'm living with so anxious every time the kids go out to play? And, you know, <laughs> I can't put up with this anymore. She's driving me crazy. I think that's, the, that's what we get from Simon. Yeah, if he makes it that long. I, I do feel that... <laughs> that something something has shifted for Lara, that she's maybe going to be slightly less anxious from this point on. Oh, 
You well, don't okay. think so. Well, we can you all don't think see. what we want. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, it's not written there. No, I think here you've got a you've got a very solid mindset that's that's moving between very clear poles of anxiety and and then yeah. and then intense sensual enjoyment. And I suspect that that oscillation uh, intensifies as one becomes more adult. She's she's growing up. Yeah, yeah, but she hadn't hit the the sensual enjoyment before this. You know, she'd always been hiding under That's the sheets. That's true. She hasn't. But, but of course, you know, the the more enjoyable the relationship gets, the the more you're worried if it ends. In fact, the first <laughs> thing she says after that great sex is, "You better tell me if you're going to leave me." You know. Yeah, yeah. Tell me if you don't love me anymore. It's very funny that Simon isn't focused or concentrated. You know, I. Stam is very, very funny about sex. He he can just be devastatingly funny. It's not really to do with him saying that anything particular has happened, but just the pace of it and the tone of voice and his his lack of surprise, as it were, at, at what's going on. Yeah. Uh, some of that humour comes in just with the title, Sweet Dreams. You know, this is this is a story about someone who has who has very dark imaginings. And who at the end can't fall asleep. <laughs> yeah. yeah. And yet the dream is very obviously sweet. the dream of the apartment and the, yeah. and the boyfriend. Sweet Dreams is all, always has an air of irony to it. Yeah. It is interesting thinking about what, what I was saying about the international aspect. That, you know, we have names like Ikea. We have a, an American country singer. We have, a, I think, one or two German town names. We have... Ex Miss Switzerland wanted to climb Kilimanjaro. We had Prince William. There, there's nothing that makes you worry about, you know, Swiss life being different from any other life. No, if you didn't know he was Swiss, then you could imagine this in any any town in Europe. Oh, absolutely! Yeah. You could easily you could easily rewrite this. He's not interested in getting deeply into, you know, what makes Switzerland Switzerland. He's interested in in what makes Lara Lara, as it were. Well, thank you so much, Tim. Oh, thanks, Deborah. It's interesting reading somebody else's work. It's very different from reading your own. Tim Park's latest novel is Sex is Forbidden. This episode of the New Yorker Fiction Podcast is brought to you by Little Brown & Company, publishers of Let's Explore Diabetes with Owls by David Sedaris. Deeply satisfying, says David Carr in the New York Times. And the Los Angeles Times raves, yes, David Sedaris really is that good. And based on this latest collection, he's only getting better. Let's Explore Diabetes with Owls, the number one New York Times bestseller, is now in paperback. Start reading at littlebrown.com. You can subscribe to this podcast in the iTunes store, where you can download more than 80 previous episodes. You can also hear the latest fiction from the magazine, read by the authors, on newyorker.com. Recent readings include stories by Saeed Sairafizadeh and Paul Theroux. You can download the weekly audio edition of The New Yorker through iTunes or audible.com. Subscribers to the magazine can access the digital edition for tablets and phones at no extra charge from the App Store or from Google Play. Tell us what you thought of this program on our Facebook page. The New Yorker Fiction Podcast is produced by NewYorker.com and Curtis Fox Productions. I'm Deborah Treisman. Thanks for listening.